forget about it. The presidency isn't a bull, and this country isn't a china shop. It is now. Nice china shop you got there. Be a shame if something happened to Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. In Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In Washington, D.C. on 105.5 FM and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We're also heard streaming coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us once again for the world-famous Bradcast. Delighted to have you here with us. Um, delighted to have you here with us, Desi Doyen. Let me just <laughs> oh, say that at the offset. Well, thank you. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. What yeah, a day. It's, of all the days since Donald Trump has taken office, I got to say, there's been a lot of crazy days. This may be the most insane. This really may yeah. must be the most insane. I, and now, listen, uh, well, let me start here, um, tease our guest coming up, because I'm looking forward to that. That may be... Uh, an ocean of uh, 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 sanity. Uh, yeah, an oasis of sanity <laughs> in an ocean of crazy. Anyway, um, if there's one thing that has been driving a lot of the Republican leaders in Congress kind of crazy right now, it's that every health care plan that they release, be it in the Senate where the fight to pass something, anything goes on today, even as we speak, even as we go to air, and there's kind of complete disarray right now in the Senate, whether it's that or over in the House. Every single healthcare plan that they have released, or at least almost every, has come along with a, a score, an analysis by the nonpartisan Congre- Congressional Budget Office, scoring both the cost of each plan to taxpayers and the number of Americans who would lose health care, health care insurance coverage in any event, under each of those plans. And to date, Each proposed piece of legislation has come out with the CBO score declaring that tens of millions are likely to lose coverage if that legislation is enacted. So the Republican solution to this, uh, at least according to this sort of growing movement in the U.S. House, kill the CBO. That's the solution. Or at least cripple the office and their ability to inform both Congress and the public of the actual costs of all of this proposed legislation. 
Former CBO directors are now pushing back against the attempt from congressional Republicans to do that. And we will be joined by one of those former CBO directors shortly to discuss it. Okay, as I said, I've, I've never seen anything quite like what's going on today in, in Washington, D.C. right now. I'm fairly sure that no one else has either. Um, the, the food fights, and, and they're not partisan food fights here, as one might expect. They are food fights within uh, both the administration and within the Republican Congressional Caucus itself and between both of them. And there are so many food fights, public ones going on. It's all kind of out in the public. Uh, that well, we can't cover them all today, uh, even if we wanted to, <laughs> I which know. I don't. There's way too uh, much. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's so ugly. It's so stupid. It's so good for nobody. Not good for the administration. Not good for Congress. Not good for the country. Not good for the world. I'm. Uh, I'm fairly certain that the corporate media is all over this. Uh, certainly, this big ugly fight between the new White House communications director Anthony Scaramucci. And White House Chief of Staff Reince Priebus, which is uh, insane. We'll take a pass on that one. We'll let the corporate media deal with that food fight for now, uh, if only for time's sake. Um, but it's knucking futz. I'll just put it <laughs> that way. It is absolutely insane. Suffice to say, um, first, though, I'm, I'm going to try to blow through a bunch of these items quickly here before we get to my guest. Uh, if the mooch, Scaramucci... Donald Trump's new communications director, if as he if he believes, as he said on the day that he took the job last week, that his first priority would be to end the leaks coming out of the White House itself. Well, he, he doesn't appear to be doing a very good job of it yet. Let me put it that way. Um, this is uh, from Washington Post last night. President Trump has discussed with confidants and advisors in recent days the possibility of installing a new attorney general through a recess appointment if Jeff Sessions leaves the job, but he has been warned not to move to push him out because of the political and legal ramifications that go along with it, according to people briefed on the conversations. In other words, leaks coming from within the White House itself. Still raging over Sessions' recusal from the Justice Department's Russia investigation, Trump has been talking privately about how he might replace Sessions and possibly sidestep Senate oversight, according to four people familiar with the issue. Two of those people, however, described Trump as musing about the idea rather than outlining a plan of action. Uh, and a senior White House official has said no action is imminent. Feel better? Um, not really. <laughs> Some advisors come away convinced that uh, Trump is determined to ultimately remove Sessions, uh, who was his biggest supporter during the campaign, his the first senator to come out and endorse him, uh, and that he is seriously considering a recess appointment to replace him, presumably when the Senate goes on recess in mid-August. These advisors said Trump would prefer that the attorney general resign, rather than have to be fired, but others involved in the discussions have concluded that Trump is merely venting with his continued assaults against Sessions, uh, first in the New York Times last week and then pretty much every day on Twitter since then during a, a press conference a day or two ago. The president has the power, of course, to make a recess appointment when the Senate adjourns for a long break, more than a week. 
But Democrats have now said they will use parliamentary stalling tactics to prevent the Senate from formally adjourning throughout the upcoming August break in order to prevent um, either the firing of sessions or a recess appointment. Uh, Late Wednesday night, Senate Judiciary Committee Charles Grassley, Chuck Grassley, Republican of Iowa, tweeted a warning to Trump saying that uh, his committee's schedule is already set for the remainder of the year and it will consider judge and sub-cabinet nominees uh, first, adding AG no way. So um, (laughs) he's saying he's the Republican head of the Judiciary Committee, which would be needed if it wasn't a recess appointment. If uh, Trump nominated someone the old school way and they would go through the confirmation process, etc. So that is out, at least according to the Judiciary Chair, Chuck Grassley. So uh, but the uh, idea of a recess appointment is still there. Replacing sessions could be a precursor to then firing Robert Mueller as special counsel, but several of Trump's White House advisors, including Chief of Staff Reince Priebus, if he's still around in the next few days, and Chief Strategist uh, Steve Bannon have strongly counseled the president against ordering the dismissal of Mueller, which they have warned would be a political, if not legal, catastrophe that, again, according to people familiar with the discussions inside the uh, inside the White House. Now, uh, it's not just a, a, a political crisis. It's a it's a constitutional crisis. Senator Al Franken, a Democrat from Minnesota, warned that a constitutional crisis would occur if Trump did fire Attorney General Jeff Sessions and try to uh, then appoint a successor during the August recess. Franken who voted against Sessions and, as he says in his own words, wasn't happy with some of the answers he gave during his confirmation hearing, says, nonetheless, what Donald Trump seems to be doing here is playing with constitutional fire. This idea of the president uh, firing him so that he can re- so he can appoint, do a recess appointment of an attorney uh, general who can then fire Mueller, that's a constitutional crisis. That would create a constitutional crisis. Chuck, uh, Chuck Schumer, the Senate minority leader, said, uh, let me state for the record now, before this scheme gains wings, Democrats will never go along with a recess appointment if that situation arises. Adding the Democrats, quote, have some tools in our toolbox to block Trump from a recess appointment. What they seem to be saying is they will filibuster a motion to uh, to adjourn for the recess, a motion to recess, I guess. Well, good. So they do have some tools. They say they do. And then the question is, will or will they not exercise? How will they know whether to exercise it or not? Oh, good point. At this point, it seems to me, seeing how uh, unsteady, is that the right word here, that uh, Donald Trump is, there's no way to know. He can tell people, oh, I would never do that. I would absolutely, I promise, I give you my word, I would never do a recess appointment while you guys are gone. Go ahead, have fun. Well, you can't trust him. Uh, and then he would do it anyway. Yeah, you can't right. trust him, obviously. I mean, he's so impulsive, clearly, with the transgender ban in the military that came out. Right, which, we're, which I hope to get to in a second. Okay. And we have some, we've learned more about that. In any event, it's not just Democrats in this case, Republican senators. 
uh, have both come to the uh, support of Jeff, Se- Jeff Sessions uh, to his defense. He was, after all, a longtime colleague of theirs as a U.S. senator from Alabama. And today, Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican from Sa- South, South Carolina, Carolina yes, uh, and, and other members of the Senate Judiciary Committee are now reportedly drafting legislation to block the possibility of special counsel Robert Mueller being fired. Uh, by various machinations of the president. According to AP today, a Republican and two Democrats said Thursday they are coming. uh, They are among committee members working on legislation that would prevent the firing of special counsels without judicial review. That would be Republican Senator Lindsey Graham and uh, Democrats Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island and Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut. A Graham spokesman says the senator is still working on the bill. It's unclear when it will be introduced. Graham has sternly warned Trump not to fire Mueller or attorney Jeff Sessions. He said on Thursday that there would be, quote, holy hell to pay if Trump fired Sessions. And Ben Sass, one of the uh, most conservative members of the U.S. Senate, uh, spoke about all all of this today. Again, this is a Republican, Senator Ben Sass, today on the floor of the U.S. Senate. If you're thinking of making a recess appointment to push out the attorney general, forget about it. The presidency isn't a bull and this country isn't a china shop. Mr. President, you're a public servant in a system of limited government with a duty to uphold and to defend and to teach to our kids the Constitution system of checks and balances. And this, this is the world's greatest experiment in self-government. It works only if all of us, presidents, senators, Republicans, Democrats, independents, and judges, if we all keep our faith to the American institutions and to the rule of law. That was Nebraska Senator Ben Sass today on the uh, floor of the U.S. Senate. I cannot stress, for those of you who have just arrived from another planet (laughs) and you're saying, I cannot stress how unusual it is for a member of the president's own party to go out onto the floor of the Senate uh, and dress down, frankly, the president in the way that uh, Sass did right there. It's, It's amazing. But... Uh, we don't have time to discuss how amazing it is because there's more amazing stuff. We are now <laughs> learning about, as you mentioned, uh, we're learning more about the the snap decision to ban transgender troops from the U.S. military that was announced on Twitter yesterday by Donald Trump. Politico writes that after a week sparring with his attorney general and steaming over the Russia investigation consuming his agenda, President Donald Trump was closing in on an an important win. House Republicans were planning to pass a spending bill stacked with his campaign promises, including money to build his border wall with Mexico. And I believe the House has just passed that as we went to air. Yes. um, Passed that uh, their version of the spending bill with some one point four billion dollars, I think, as a down payment for that wall. That we were told would be paid for by Mexico. But in any event, uh, an internal House Republican fight over transgender troops was threatening to blow up that bill. And House GOPers uh, feared they might not have the votes to pass the legislation because 
uh, what are being described as defense hawks here wanted a ban on Pentagon funded sex reassignment operations which uh, GOP leaders would not give them. So these House uh, GOP insiders turned directly to Trump, who didn't hesitate. In the flash of a tweet, Politico says he announced that transgender troops would be banned altogether. Trump's sudden decision was in part a last-ditch attempt to save that House proposal full of his campaign promises that was on the verge of defeat because it would have been uh, blocked by these uh, hardline Republicans uh, if they didn't get their way on this uh, transgender funding. But they were talking about funding for uh, transgender medical care. They were not talking about a complete and utter ban, apparently, on transgender uh, people serving in the military. Now, they had gone initially to uh, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, who refused to immediately upend the policy of, uh, of, of uh, taxpayer money being used for these gender reassignment surgeries and, and so forth. Uh, he said he was taking a look at it. Uh, and so they went straight to the White House, to Trump, who was apparently all too happy to oblige. Trump tweeted on Wednesday, please be advised that the U.S. government will not accept or allow transgender individuals to serve in any capacity in the U.S. military. Our military must be focused on decisive and overwhelming victory and cannot be burdened with the tremendous medical costs and disruption that transgender in the military would entail. That, of course, is a step far beyond uh, whether they would uh, whether the government would pay for so-called gender reassignment surgery and other medical care. Um, A senior House Republican aide said in an email to Politico, this is like someone told the White House to light a candle on the table and the White House set the whole table on fire. (laughs) Yeah. The source said that although GOP leaders asked the White House for help on the taxpayer matter specifically, they weren't expecting and they got no heads up that Trump would issue this far-reaching directive. CNN uh, reports that uh, Trump's decision uh, came after the White House was lobbied by conservatives on the issue, including Vicki Hartzler of Missouri, who proposed an amendment on the defense authorization bill to ban the Pentagon from paying what Hartzler calls transition surgery and uh, hormone therapy. But they were pushing only to prevent the Pentagon from paying for medical costs associated with gender confirmation, not an outright ban. So uh, this caught everyone by surprise, even those uh, hardline conservatives who had gone uh, straight to the president, who had gone over the heads of uh, congressional leadership, who had gone over the heads of the defense secretary to, uh, to, to try to get Trump to do this. And boy, howdy, did he. Wow. And uh, that's what we have ended up with. No one knows how to deal with this. No one knows how to implement it. House Armed Services Committee chair, a Republican, told CNN that it was a complete surprise, not only to us, but to the Pentagon. Asked if whether he agreed or disagreed with Trump's decision. Thornberry said, I don't know what it means. Wow. Well, what it means, among other things, is that if it was actually implemented, you've got thousands of transgender troops who now serve openly in the military after being told last year 
under the Obama administration policy that they would be allowed to do so. They allowed to be open about their uh, about their gender. If that policy were to change now, those people who came out as trans would presumably have to be discharged. Uh, and this reminds me of all of those dreamer kids. Remember that oh, yeah. uh, those who were brought to the U.S. by their parents illegally as children, they were told um, by the previous administration that federal policy would defer their deportation if they registered with the federal government, only to then have uh, the current administration come in and say, well, nope, we're going to deport those children if we want to now. Thanks for telling us where you live, kids. Um, finally, for now, uh, <laughs> so and moving on, we don't even have time to talk about how insane that is. Moving on, the fight in the Senate to figure out some way to repeal and or replace Obamacare continues. And there's another uh, troubling intra-party, intra-governmental branches food fight related to that now as well. We told you yesterday that... Trump had singled out Alaska Senator um, Republican Lisa Murkowski on Twitter for voting against the initial motion to proceed to debate on the GOP Senate health care replacement bill, whatever it turns out to be. Now we're learning a bit more about what why that happened, what's going on behind the scenes there. Apparently, uh, early on Wednesday, we know that Trump took to Twitter to express his displeasure with Murkowski and her vote according to the Alaska Dispatch News. But by that afternoon, each of Alaska's two Senate uh, Republican senators received a call from the Interior Secretary, Ryan Zinke, letting them know that they had uh, that their uh, vote on health care had put Alaska's future with the administration in jeopardy. Alaska Senator Dan Sullivan said the call from Zinke heralded a troubling message. He said, quote, I'm not going into details, but I fear that the strong economic growth, pro-energy, pro-mining, pro-jobs and personnel from Alaska who are part of these policies are going to stop, Sullivan said. He said, I tried to push back on behalf of all Alaskans, uh, but uh, the message was pretty clear coming from uh, the White House, or at least in this case, coming from the Interior Department, who had been clearly dispatched by the White House yeah. to do their bidding. Uh, the Interior Secretary also contacted Murkowski, apparently. Sullivan said the uh, secretary was clear that his message was in response to the no vote from Murkowski cast Tuesday on the motion to proceed with debate on the House-passed health care legislation. And, um, well, Desi, you, you, I think, uh, you pointed out this headline to me. You called it the headline of the day. <laughs> Basically, here's the headline from Quartz. Trump threatens to protect the environment if Alaska senators don't back health care bill. Yep. That's what this comes down to. It does. Uh, the, uh, this is what they're talking about uh, doing. What the Interior Department had been talking about doing was building a road through a wildlife refuge to expand on oil drilling and protected lands. Uh, and all of that is now in danger, depending on how Lisa Murkowski apparently votes on the health care bill. Frankly, uh, I'm against them exploiting federal lands and building uh, uh, roads through the wildlife refuge. 
But um, so I, I, I don't even know what to think on anything anymore, to be frank. Well, it, um, this is basically Zinke biting the hand that feeds him. He may not be aware that uh, Lisa Murkowski is not only the top appropriator for the Department of Interior because she's the chair of the Senate Committee on Energy and yeah. Natural Resources. She decides his budget, his budget as also the chair of the Appropriations Subcommittee on the Interior. So she has control over his appointees. She has has control over his funding and so she's in office until 2022 right yeah she's not uh up I against it like some of these other senators like dean heller's up for election exactly. uh, i don't think she can easily be bullied i don't think she can and she may not take that uh threat essentially from from the White House, from the Interior Department, well. And his phone call actually may trigger an Interior Department Inspector General investigation. Which is what I'm wondering. Is that even legal? We'll find out. Are you able to threaten uh, to withhold federal funding uh, if, if such and such doesn't vote the way you want them to? This one branch threatening another branch it's incredible. Okay, speaking of incredible, we got about 30 seconds. Well, it's, you know, they're calling it a skinny bill, so maybe it only needs about 30 seconds to cover <laughs> it. But Senate Republicans are now uh, sort of at their last chance in the U.S. Senate to pass something, anything, to replace the Affordable Care Act. And what they're now down to, they're calling a skinny repeal. We don't have the full details on it. There's kind of disarray in the Senate over all of this. No, not Desiree. <laughs> disarray in the Senate. Uh, they're talking about it, repealing the individual mandate, the requirement to buy health care. Uh, a partial repeal of the employer mandate to um, to require uh, businesses with more than 50 employees to offer health care. Uh, one year defunding of Planned Parenthood they're throwing into this thing. And basically what they're saying is we're going to pass this and we don't actually mean it to become law. We just want to pass it so we can have a win, so we can say we accomplished something, give it to the House, and then we'll all work it out in a, the committee. But now Senate Republicans are realizing there's a danger here. They don't know whether the Republicans uh, in the House will actually go into a House committee to work this out, there's a danger that the House may just vote for this so-called skinny bill. If they do and the mandate to buy health care is ended, that could, in fact, create the death spiral that Republicans keep pretending is going on because you would have people like me. Well, hell, I'll just cancel my health care right now. I'll wait till I'll get sick and then I'll buy health care if there's no mandate to buy it in advance. So you've got four Republican senators at this hour, at this minute, frankly, Senator Lindsey Graham, John McCain of Arizona, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, who say they will not vote for this slimmed-down partial repeal of the Affordable Care Act without an ironclad guarantee that the House will negotiate a comprehensive measure. Graham said the skinny bill is a policy disaster. The skinny bill as a replacement for Obamacare is a fraud. Senator Johnson said the skinny bill in the Senate doesn't come close to meeting our promises. Uh, right now, John McCain says, I am voting no. And uh, Graham was emphatic about it. He said, I need assurances from the Speaker of the House and his team that if I vote for the skinny bill, that it will not be the final product. Graham said, I'm not going to vote for a pig in a poke. 
Whether he will or will not remains to be seen. And whether uh, or not they could be trusted even if they did say so. Correct. So, all right, with all of that madness going on uh, over in, uh, <laughs> well, in, in the Senate, over in the House, they're passing that uh, spending bill since a federal budget must be completed by both houses in some form by the end of September or the U.S. government shuts down again. So what could possibly possibly go wrong there? Among the debates in the House uh, is that uh, was the attempt to gut or otherwise defund the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, which helps members of Congress actually know what their budget proposals actually cost. And it tells them and us uh, how many Americans, for example, will lose their health care under all of these various GOP schemes to repeal Obamacare? We are joined next by a former acting director of the Congressional, Congressional Budget Office to discuss what they really do and how they score these various proposals and how much trouble that office may now be in with those Republicans in the House sharpening their knives for the CBO. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the broadcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence, because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. What's the score? I can't tell anymore Are we winning? Are we losing? Are we tied? Who knows? What's the score? I don't know It ain't what it was before Welcome back to the Bradcast Brad Friedman from bradblog.com What is the score? We rely on the Congressional Budget Office for that At least uh, some of us do At least some of us used to but uh, as the remarkable intra-party food fight continues today among Republicans in the U.S. Senate and the, the Trump administration regarding attempts to repeal and or replace Obamacare, and frankly, uh, now so much more, one of the issues that seems to have driven many Republicans to distraction in recent weeks is that every time they come out with a proposal to repeal and or replace the Affordable Care Act, it's accompanied by a score or analysis from the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. In this case, each CBO score has found that each GOP plan to replace Obamacare would result in anywhere from 16 million to 32 million Americans losing their health uh, care insurance coverage, which has helped to not only cause Republicans to get cold feet about such schemes, Republicans themselves, but also to help rally the American public against those schemes as they learn the plans uh, and uh, could have very serious and harmful ramifications for tens of millions of Americans. Rather than rethink their plans to avoid taking away coverage from Americans, a number of congressional Republicans are instead hoping to take away funding from the CBO, which they claim has a record of inaccurate analysis of congressional legislation or, according to some, is a partisan outfit hoping to harm the Republican agenda here that even though the CBO is currently headed up by a conservative Republican appointed by conservative Republicans in Congress, 
Nonetheless, the increasing criticism of the CBO and threats to defund and or otherwise punish the congressional office uh, led to eight former CBO directors, Republican and Democratic alike, sending a letter to congressional leadership last week to express, as the former directors wrote, their, quote, outrage and their strong objection to recent attacks on the integrity and professionalism of the agency and on the agency's role in the legislative process. CBO began serving the Congress in 1975, they write, over the past 42 years. CBO has been firmly committed to providing nonpartisan and high-quality analysis, and that commitment remains as strong and effective today as it has been in the past. In sum, the letter concludes, relying on CBO's estimates in the legislative process has served the Congress and the American people very well during the past four decades. As the House and Senate consider potential policy changes this year and in the years ahead, we urge you to maintain and respect the Congress's decades-long reliance on CBO's estimates in developing and scoring bills. The letter is signed, as I mentioned, by eight different former CBO directors. In fact, every single one of them, going back as far as 1975 to the very first CBO director, I believe, under Gerald Ford, uh, Alice Rivlin there. And yet... As we noted earlier this week, members of the Conservative Freedom Caucus in Congress have been calling for drastic changes to the Congressional Budget Office, including slashing its budget and its workforce. On Wednesday, the House voted down two different spending bill amendments that would have cut some $15 million and 89 staff members from the CBO. As Freedom Caucus uh, Chair Mark Meadows and others in his caucus have argued, the CBO has a record of inaccuracy in their analyses that should bar them from conducting any independent analyses whatsoever. Instead, Meadows Meadows suggests they should simply mix together the studies of various partisan and corporate-funded think tanks. They ought to be aggregators, he said. We ought to take a score from the Heritage Foundation, from the American Enterprise Institute, from the Brookings Institution, from the Urban Institute, and bring them together for a composite score that would represent a wide swath of their abilities, he said. We think that's a pragmatic way to rely on the private sector and let Congress rely on a score that is accurate. That was Freedom Caucus Chair Mark Meadows pushing back this week. In a blog article published at one of those private sector groups, the Urban Institute in this case, Donald Marin, a former acting CBO director himself, used blunt language in describing the Freedom Caucus proposal to essentially cripple the CBO. Marin says, quote, this is a terrible idea. It would harm fiscal policymaking and weaken the Congress. Here to discuss that terrible idea and perhaps why he finds it so terrible is Donald Marin. He is an Institute Fellow uh, and Director of Economic Policy Initiatives at the Urban Institute. Before joining the Urban Institute, he served in senior federal government positions. Oh, he's part of the swamp, including uh, as acting director of the Congressional Budget Office and as a member and chief economist of the president's Council of Economic Advisors during the George W. Bush administration. He's also a senior research fellow at the Climate Leadership Council and editor 
of 32nd Economics, a short book that introduces readers to 50 of the most important theories in economics. Donald Marin, sir, welcome to the broadcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, now, just to uh, give us a, a basis for this conversation, Donald, you were you were on the President's Council of Economic Advisors uh, during the George W. Bush administration. I, I realize the world has changed at least several times over since then. But uh, just for purposes of grounding our discussion here, uh, I presume that means that you either are or at least were a Republican? Me, so I, you know, lifelong independent. Uh, ended up working with Republicans both in Congress and in the White House, but uh, but I try to be as non-political as humanly possible. Very good, uh, and and good luck with that these days. <laughs> the uh, the recent attempt by the uh, Freedom Caucus that I mentioned there to gut the CBO seems to have. Uh, at least for the moment, failed. There was uh, uh, a couple of amendments that went down uh, this week in the uh, in the House, but I think if we can learn anything from the GOP's repeated plans and attempts here to repeal and replace Obamacare and so much else they do, they don't give up easily on these things. So it seems uh, wise to keep a close eye on what they're trying to do here. But hey, your organization. Uh, Donald, the Urban Institute was named by Congressman Meadows as one of the outside groups that could be relied on for much of what the CBO does now. That seems like it would be good news to the Urban Institute. And yet you oppose the measure. Why is that? Sure. Well, you know, we we, we certainly appreciate the shout out. Uh, It's not often in life one finds one's organization written in by name into uh, an amendment pending in Congress. Right. Uh, And so we appreciate the implicit endorsement there. But this is this is not a role that... Uh, you know, we should be asked to fill or that Congress should be, you know, relying on us to fill. Uh, I should say, you know, at the Urban Institute, we have, uh, you know, kind of hundreds of researchers here who study all different parts of federal policy and the federal budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have excellent models for studying pieces of federal policy, uh, including one that uh, we've been using to analyze the various proposals to change the Affordable Care Act. And so we publish our own estimates of what would happen to coverage. Uh, actually, in several cases, they show lar- larger coverage losses than uh, than CBO estimates. So we can, you know, we can provide information on many of the dimensions that are of interest to Congress. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to run an intelligent congressional budget process, uh, Congress really ought to have its own agency producing its own numbers that you know works directly for Congress, is part of Congress, uh, and responds to the needs of Congress in ways that outside groups and you uh, the, the public only tends to hear about the CBO, uh, you know, when there's a major issue like health care reform uh, uh, comes up uh, as an acting, a former acting CBO director. Uh, can you give us a sense of what the CBO actually does every day, uh, how and why it was formed and, and why it's so important as you see it to to leave intact at this point? Sure. So, yes, yeah, so from, from my point of view, the Congressional Budget Office is a real jewel in our government. Uh, it is a, you know, a wonderful agency filled with uh, nonpartisan professional staff whose job it is to give their best read to members of Congress about what the budget and economic implications will be of proposed policy. Uh, it was created back in the early 1970s, as you mentioned, uh, back when uh, President Richard Nixon and Congress were at war with one, with one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things they were fighting about was actually control over uh, the budget, control over appropriations, control over spending. 
Um, and Congress decided, I think correctly, that the executive branch had too much power back then, and they wanted to uh, bring some of it back to Congress. And part of that was to create their own budget office, to create, you know, come up with their own estimates and their own numbers so that they could be informed about what the implications of policy are. Uh, and so with CBO, you know, it's kind of its garden variety day in, day out thing is that uh, members of Congress will have ideas to change the law, change policies, whether it's health care or, you know, energy policy mm-hmm. or, you know, you name it, defense policy anywhere. Uh, and the analysts at CBO will help the members and their staff understand what the implications will be for the budget. They do an enormous amount of that work behind the scenes, mm-hmm. helping members and staffers work through options uh, confidentially until they're ready to come out with something in public. Uh, and then the thing we see most in public is that when uh, a congressional committee passes a bill or when you have a major piece of legislation like the health reform being debated on the floor, uh, CBO will publish public cost estimates of what the implications of those bills are, uh, and that provides enormously useful information for both Congress and those of us who are citizens to understand uh, what they're considering. Prior to the CBO uh, in the uh, in the 70s, coming out of that fight with uh, with the Nixon administration, what, what, what who who did Congress rely on for their numbers? Were they reliant on whatever the executive office, uh, the executive branch came in with when they proposed budgets and said? this will save this much money or cost this much money? They had to rely on those numbers? Who did they go to previously? Exactly, exactly. So the executive branch, uh, the Office of Management and Budget, and the various agencies, uh, of course, are in the business also of putting together estimates about what the implications of policy are. Uh, And back in those days, Congress predominantly relied on uh, what the executive branch would say. Uh, I think what we found in the intervening 40-plus years is that it's really beneficial to have two groups doing that, not just one. Mm. That uh, the mere existence of CBO and its professional analysts, you know, constrains what uh, the executive branch can claim about its policies. Because if they get too out of line with what reasonable people would expect, uh, the CBO scores will make that evident. The uh, office is frequently referred to as the nonpartisan CBO, but it, is it really? Can it be? I mean, it's its directors and and staff, as I understand it, come from congressional appointments, do they not? Uh, so only the director. So the director is chosen, uh, you know, in essence, by the leadership of the House and the Senate every four years. Uh, the rest of the staff is professional staff, uh, stays on uh, as directors come and go. Many of them have been there a very long time. Uh, enormous credit should be given to Alice Rivlin, the founder of the Congressional Budget Office, who established very early on a culture of uh, you know, nonpartisan professional work that has persisted to this day. Uh, the folks who work at CBO are the kind of folks who you know, like to analyze issues, like to work with numbers, uh, like to inform the process, and you know, do their very best not to have a thumb on the scale one way or the other. There uh, seems to be some irony now in that the attacks uh, against the CBO, it's currently headed up by a conservative Republican appointed by the Republican Congress, no? Sure, well, yeah, so so Republicans have been in charge of Congress for several years now, so they had the opportunity to appoint the most recent director. 
uh, and uh, Keith Hall. And, you know, Keith Hall is doing a great job of uh, maintaining the nonpartisan reputation of the agency. If we were to get rid of the CBO or at least gut it, as uh, these uh, several Republican schemes are now calling for, uh, how would that affect groups like you, like the like the Urban Institute itself? You, too, rely on CBO uh, uh, numbers in your own analysis, do you not? We do. And so we and many research organizations around town, uh, when we're called on to analyze various policy issues, a very common starting point is to go look at what CBO has come up with uh, in terms of, you know, where we are now, what we call a baseline, right? So what is spending on Medicare going to look like? What mm-hmm. is spending on food stamps going to look like? Uh, and then we use that as a jumping off point for building our own analyses of what uh, policy changes would be. Uh, you know, obviously we could do some of that ourselves, and we do do some of that ourselves, mm-hmm. but it, it makes mu- life much easier for us to have a go-to resource like CBO. As a uh, as a fellow yourself at the uh, the Urban Institute, uh, do you feel that if groups like yours and the Right Wing Heritage Foundation, et cetera, were were being relied upon to score legislation, uh, where you know, in, in the absence of the CBO, that there might therefore be an incentive uh, by such groups to sort of hedge the analysis? And I, I know you wouldn't uh, you know, purposely do this, but isn't an incentive in place to sort of hedge the analysis uh, more in the direction of one political agenda or another in order to sort of work the refs or, in this case, I guess, work the aggregated analysis if that's what is relied upon by Congress? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be a danger of relying on some of these outside groups? Well, so I'm going to speak for the Urban Institute, and for us, you know, we are very much in the nonpartisan objective analysis business, mm-hmm. and we would try to continue, you know, we would continue doing that. Uh, we, are, we are probably the most similar thing to CBO that's outside government. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have similar models. We have similar capabilities. Uh, my bigger concern is that uh, we simply don't have the bandwidth or capacity to do the enormous breadth of things that Congress does. And that that CBO does on behalf of the Congress. Uh, you know, in a typical year, CBO will publish uh, 600 public cost estimates of legislation working its way through uh, through through the process. Really? 600. Six hundred. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, now, now you know now many of them are not as complicated mm-hmm. as what we're seeing with the health bill, right? The health right. bill. The health bills are outliers. But there'll be 600 published ones, and they'll do thousands of cost estimates behind the scenes for members uh, and their staffs. Uh, that's that's why they have you know all those people over there doing this work, mm-hmm. um, and you know they cover everything from agriculture programs to veterans programs to defense to food stamps to social security to pensions and on and on. Uh, and you know we in the research community you know we have great models for some of those things, uh, so for health, for taxes, from other things. But you know there are hundreds of other topics where. Uh, kind of the research community just doesn't have the same tools as CBO and wouldn't be able to, to fill that role. The uh, the Hill reports today that the uh, First Amendment that was ultimately defeated in the House on Wednesday, uh, offered by Congressman Scott Perry, Republican of Pennsylvania, would have slashed the CBO uh, funding by 50.4 percent. That figure, Perry said was meant to match the discrepancy between the CBO's predictions for how many people would gain health insurance under Obamacare and the number that actually did. This has been one of the most frequent uh, critiques, at least that I've heard um, uh, from Republicans, that the numbers that the CBO predicted for the Affordable Care Act were just totally wrong, can't be relied upon. 
Uh, they were wrong for Obamacare, so therefore they're wrong now. Are, are you able to speak to, to that critique in any way? I can. Uh, and so, I mean, the first thing we should all stipulate is that uh, making predictions about the future is difficult. Uh, right? Our crystal mm-hmm. balls are cloudy. Uh, predictions are, you know, difficult, especially about the future, however you want to phrase it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, CBO does its best to, to, to make reasonable estimates of what's going to happen when policy changes uh, occur. Mm-hmm. But obviously there's going to be some miss, and we just have to accept that because, you know, the future is the future. Um, in this particular case, what happened is that CBO put together projections for the Affordable Care Act, that, you know, just to be clear, if anyone ever wants to click over in CBO and look at these, right, they include, you know, dozens and dozens of predictions in there about enrollment in the exchanges, about enrollment in Medicaid, Mm -hmm. about the cost savings from various changes to Medicare, and on and on. So, you know, you've got hundreds and hundreds of numbers in there. Mm -hmm. Um, And in this case, what happened is that their original projections about how many people would sign up on the exchanges uh, were too high. Uh, now, it turns out that also their prediction of how many people would enroll in Medicaid were too low. And so actually, CBO was very close in predicting what uh, the overall change in health insurance coverage would be mm-hmm. uh, following the act. Uh, so it was in a few million on that, which at the magnitudes we're talking about is quite close. Uh, but they got the composition off. Uh, they had too many people on the exchanges, not enough on Medicaid. Is there is there any reason to believe that the uh, the, the CBO estimates, the score that have come out for the various Republican health care uh, bills are uh, wildly off? Meaning, uh, do your independent analysis at the Urban Institute and and even some of the uh, you know the, the the right wing the right wing Heritage Foundation and so forth have 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 they come up? If we did this sort of outside aggregated score. Um, th- that the Republicans are talking about here with groups like yours and, and the others, would the numbers that we currently know or that we're currently being told about the uh, these bills, would they be radically different than the, you know, anywhere from 16 million to 32 million losing coverage? You know, the numbers that, that uh, my colleagues here at the Urban Institute have would be kind of similar in magnitude. And as mm-hmm. I mentioned before, in some cases, we think that the coverage losses might be higher. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, some of the other groups might have lower estimates, but if you did some, you know, whatever you think is a reasonable aggregation of them, you know, you're not going to change the basic qualitative story, right? And the basic story of the bills is that they would reduce significantly future spending on Medicaid, which by definition takes coverage away from many of the people who are on Medicaid, mm-hmm. uh, and they would make uh, participating in the exchanges uh, less attractive. And so any way you cut and slice this, you're going to have millions upon millions fewer people with health insurance in the future uh, under any of these bills that have been considered. Uh, have you, uh, I don't know if you're still in touch, uh, you were the acting director of the CBO at one point, or I don't know if you're still in touch with the, uh, with the staffers there in the office. Uh, are you able to speak to the, to the mood of the folks at the CBO these days? Have you talked with any of them? And, and are you personally uh, w- worried about uh, this, uh, you know, this, this move uh, gaining steam to, to gut the CBO at this point? So the folks at CBO are accustomed to uh, some background level of being beaten up on, <laughs> right. uh, just as you know, umpires and referees are used to it, because right. people are always uh, on one side or the other going to be somewhat aggrieved by what you come out with, uh, just because... You know, they wish that things were free, uh, basically. <laughs> uh, and 
so you know some level of that goes with the territory it's normal everyone's accustomed to it you know the level of enmity towards cbo from some circles today though is quite extreme uh and you know it obviously doesn't boost morale over there among my my friends at cbo mm-hmm. and it is it is concerning however you know we have seen that these the amendments that you mentioned that got voted down you know got voted down overwhelmingly uh you know 3 to 1 margin mm-hmm. uh and that we saw many prominent republicans come forward and speak out on behalf of cbo because they recognize that you know, for Congress to be effective, it needs its own source of uh, numbers that it can trust, and uh, CBO is the best at that. Before I let you go, uh, Donald Marin, uh, are there ways that the CBO at this point could or should be improved uh, legitimately, as opposed to being gutted? Uh, are there things that Congress uh, should do to improve the CBO as you see it? Well, so I, you know, obviously there are, there are issues where if it had a little bit more funding, there, there are more things that it could analyze. Uh, you know, there's lots of interest in what's called dynamic scoring at the moment, including macroeconomic effects uh, in its estimates. Uh, it wasn't able to do that as part of the health bill, but, you know, in, in the future might be able to do more of that than it has traditionally. Um, and I think there is, there is, I think, a sincere set of issues around, out there about whether CBO could be more transparent in some of what it does. Mm. Uh, and I think it's worth thinking through that carefully and, and seeing whether there's, there's some improvements we could make on that front. Well, I suspect this battle will continue. As I said at the onset, um, Republicans tend to take ideas, you know, cutting Planned Parenthood funding and all sorts of things and continue that fight for years and years. So I think the CBO needs to, um, well, it, it could be a tough battle for the CBO in the coming years. We will see. Donald Marin, uh, really appreciate you joining us here today. Uh, Donald Marin is an Institute Fellow and Director of Economic Policy Initiatives at the Urban Institute, former Acting Director of the CBO, and the author of 32nd Economics, a short book uh, introducing readers to important theories in economics. I ought to read that book. Donald, really appreciate you joining us here today. Hey, thanks so much. You bet. Okay, quick break. I'm running late. But let me get in at least one more story that I had hoped to get in yesterday. We will get it in today. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Trying to tell me something, Des? <laughs> you running on empty, are you? Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I know I said I had one more story because we're running late, but now I've got two because it's just that kind of a day. Uh, just breaking, the U.S. Senate has voted nearly unanimously to slap new sanctions on Russia despite President Donald Trump's objections to the legislation 
which has angered Russian President Vladimir Putin, who has threatened to retaliate, according to Reuters. The Senate-backed measure, which also imposes sanctions on Iran and North Korea, uh, passed by a uh, 98-2 margin in the U.S. Senate with strong support from Trump's fellow Republicans as well as Democrats. That bill will now be sent to the White House for Trump to sign into law or to veto. Interesting uh, uh, dilemma for him. If, if he chooses to veto it, the bill is expected to garner enough support in both chambers to override his veto and pass into law. So that's just happening today. Uh, and finally here, I wanted to get to this yesterday, uh, this whole... All of this, we always go back to the ballot box. We always go back to voting because that's the way we, one way or another, put an end to all of this madness. Uh, and that's why Donald Trump's so-called Election Integrity Commission, a voter suppression commission, uh, is so important because it could be used by Republicans. It is being used by Republicans to try and suppress the vote. Well, the guy they have in charge of it is Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, a longtime voter fraud fraudster. Uh, and uh, now he has been slapped down once again by a federal judge for misleading the federal court. Federal Judge Julie Robinson this week denied Kobach's appeal of a $1,000 sanction and issued uh, a bit of a smackdown against, uh, against, uh, against Kobach, the vice chair of the Election Integrity Commission. The uh, federal judge uh, said that Kobach misleaded the court in one of the ACLU's cases against him, against uh, the Kansas Secretary of State. Um, Kobach had been sanctioned by the court and fined $1,000 in the case for misleading about documents that he was seen carrying into a meeting with Donald Trump regarding changes to the National Voter Registration Act. In June, U.S. Magistrate James P. O'Hara cited Kobach for, quote, deceptive conduct, lack of candor, and patently misleading representations. That was in June. Well, Kobach uh, essentially appealed that appealed that, those uh, sanctions against him, which is very serious. Even though it's $1,000 is all it is, it's very serious business when a federal court slaps down an attorney like that with sanctions. Um, so Kobach appealed that ruling, and uh, this week... The federal court not only upheld the sanctions, but offered yet another smackdown, charging that Kobach has, quote, demonstrated a pattern of misleading the court. Federal Judge Julie Robinson denied Kobach's appeal, and she wrote that she, quote, echoed Judge O'Hara's warning that when any lawyer takes an unsupportable position in a simple matter such as this, it hurts his or her credibility when the court considers arguments on much more complex and nuanced matters. In other words, this was a simple issue, and uh, Kobach misled the federal court about it. Judge Robinson went on to note that these are not the only two statements made or, the, or positions taken by Secretary Kobach that have called his credibility into question. Indeed, his assertion in this motion for review is precipitously close to unsupportable, adding that uh, all of this uh, demonstrates a pattern which gives further credence 
to uh, Judge O'Hara's conclusion initially that a sanctions award is necessary to deter defense counsel from misleading the court about the facts and record in the future. And this is the guy that Donald Trump has chosen to lead a presidential commission to root out voter fraud, a guy that attempts to lie to the federal court apparently multiple times. All right. We're out of here. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, to Donald Marin of the Urban Institute, my guest today, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. You can drop me email anytime. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com, and I hope you find, follow, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. 